if China's relations with Germany over Huawei don't progress positively, there could well be a social media consumer pushback on buying German luxury cars, for which really the only one of the few alternatives would be buy a Tesla. Another year, another recap at Look Forward with Gordon Orr, longtime McKinsey partner, LinkedIn Wang Hong, and board member of Lenovo and Meituan, among others. We'll talk tech, trade, Chinese consumers, MBA, and a lot more. Well, Gordon, some year. Well, Jordan, thanks for having me back again, and uh, congratulations on another great year with the podcast and uh, the, the newsletter. So, tech tensions. Uh, I wrote a story in uh, my newsletter, which you should all sign up for, chinaecontalk.substack.com, about how Microsoft won over the Chinese government over the 90s and 2000s, such that when Hu Jintao went to Seattle, he told Bill Gates just how happy he was to be using his software every day. The current state we're in is not the way it always used to be between uh, Western and uh, Chinese technology. So I'm curious, Gordon, for some recollections about the more uh, halcyon days and perhaps another path that this technology relationship could have gone down? Well, I'm, I'm not sure, John, that the halcyon days were ever quite as halcyon as we all you know, would okay. like to, to remember them. It's, you know, in some ways, tech tensions kicked off in the 90s when Huawei was accused of lifting wholesale the um, instruction and support manual from Cisco down Complete to... Complete with the typos, ty- right? With the typos. Um, and you know, I think that set the tone for the for the very long-term relationship that has not existed between Cisco and Huawei. Yeah. But the, the other thing is tech tensions don't just refer to semiconductors and the like. You know, we can go back probably to the automotive sector was, you know, the first sector where large-scale tensions were from the beginning back in the 1980s. The rules were in place that foreign companies had to have a minority stake, had to transfer technology. Uh, and then as you got into the 2000s, you had a whole series of... Chinese auto manufacturers copying wholesale the Range Rover design, Mercedes design, even Brilliance as a partner of BMW, mm-hmm. copying a BMW X1 model in the not so dim and distance past. So were you were you driving these cars at the time? Could you could you feel the uh, the Shanghai nature of them, or were they were they uh, really spot on? Yeah, well, my my early VW in the in in, in 1994, um, which I bought. Um, of uh, a lady who had six cars in a field just outside the third ring road in Beijing and for which I paid with a suitcase of cash. I do believe some parts were genuine VW parts. I okay. will not guarantee all of them were. But you could go on you know, high-speed rail. Siemens would tell a similar story of tech transfer, tech assimilation into the Chinese competitor and uh, loss of market access. Solar panels, wind turbines, The ground I'm trying to is tensions we have in technology today have more zeros, perhaps, and are perhaps more strategically critical for the broader economy, but they have multiple precedents. More zeros in terms of the the size of the market. Oh, more zeros. Oh, okay. So I guess this this sort of all comes back to a development strategy, which the the phase one trade deal wrap up like didn't really seem to address in all that deep a, um, uh, a way. So it's pretty hard to see a scenario in which the companies and governments start playing nice with each other. Companies to, to make investments, whether it's in factories, whether it's in route to market, whether it's in R&D, need certainty. You know, whether it's certainty around tariff structures, which potentially we have for now. 
But there's also certainty around where can I source product from? Mm -hmm. Certainty around can my people move from country A to country B? Certainty around whether I can license technology from China to another market or from the United States to China. So let, let, let's let's talk about this. I, the idea of certainty, which is something you see a lot of people on CNBC talking about. Um, but let's just go like one level lower. So say... I am a company and I don't know if I'm going to be able to to buy this technology, to export this product like that just pushes out timelines that makes you spend money uh, less efficiently. Like how does it what are the second order impacts aside from like making the board members frustrated that there are more question marks in the um, in the projections? It definitely delays capital investment decision making. Certainly over the last 18 months, many manufacturers in China have delayed manufacturing investment decisions, but they've also delayed delayed upgrade decisions where they might have been investing in robotics or AI or big data to improve productivity within within the factory. So I guess the the sort of part of the Trump administration's aim was to get folks instead to be investing in their American plants or their Western plants or their Vietnamese plants. How much do you think this um, uh, the, the trade war as well as like the temporary resolution we're seeing now has succeeded in that goal? Well, I think solution one was to try and get them to invest in the United States. Solution two would be you know, other places than, than China. Sure. If you're a major global manufacturer that's got a lot of manufacturing in China and in other places around the world supplying to global markets, you've got a manufacturing footprint that allows you to make fairly sophisticated supply chain decisions about how do we slide production around from one facility yeah. to another. Um, those decisions you're making in the context of whatever the tariff structures and whatever the supply chain constraints are. Yes, that increases cost. It creates, adds frictional costs to the system. And if it's a cost that pretty much everyone in the industry have to bear, that means almost certainly at the end of the day, the product price to the end user is going to rise. Yep. The second thing to bear in mind is you know, the proportion of output from these kind of big global companies that might be going to the United States from the China factories, it's maybe 12, 15%. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be more than that. Um, and certainly, if you have a significant market share in China for China, you're not going to be shutting down your factories because of the tariffs between China and the US. Sure. You'll be finding an optimal path, whether it's Turkey or Poland or Mexico or Vietnam, to make those products. And that proportion slides out and hopefully growth in China or growth in the other markets you're trying to serve will fill that gap in the factory in China. So I, uh, I've been writing this story about Bible production in China, and I've been talking to all these uh, Bible factory owners uh, in the US and who, who do publishing and, and manufacturing. And um, two, two fun points for that. So first, you know, over in like mid-2019, when people were worried about the second tranche and hitting 25% of everything, the argument was that uh, this is an attack on religious freedom um, because, you know, you shouldn't have to pay three more dollars per Bible to teach your children about the the, the word of God. Um, but also, you know, the, the most expensive Bibles are actually mostly produced in China because there's handiwork in them. So you have, uh, you know, like the leather bound and the ribbons and the sewing and whatnot. Um, but there's been this, uh, 
there's been this like story of technology upgrade over the past 20 years, where first there was like a Western firm who had a factory in Shenzhen, and then their you know the managers left and now have their own places, and they have this like built-in market because one of the companies is the only ones that it, that's able to sell domestically. Um, but all these folks who do contracting with the big Chinese Bible manufacturers are now looking India and Vietnam, and you know they're running into all these these problems of like you know there isn't enough pulp, and there aren't like the right trees in India or what have you. Uh, but but it's 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 been fun now that I have uh, more time to like actually do some reporting to hear these these stories of people you know really having to grapple with like the uh, you know with these like big macro political things like down to the okay like where's our next factory going to be built? I mean it's a great example of the impact on industries where essentially 70-80% of the industry's output has migrated into China yeah. over the last 30 years. I mean, if you wanted to do another one that's very different, but same kind of struggles is pianos. Mm. You know, 70-80% of global piano production is in China sure. at this point. Um, and the ability to for any individual manufacturer to slide their supply chain out of China and into a Vietnam and they're like, you know, incurs enormous amounts of cost. And for many of those players who are actually very, very China-centric, China leadership, China experienced and the like, they have no skills. Yeah, it's really scary. You know, um, to, 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 go, to go international. They wouldn't want to. They weren't ready to. And I think in reality, what it's going to lead to is pressure to consolidate in those sectors. Sure. So a few larger players emerge who eventually do have the capabilities to operate internationally. Sure. So... um you know, we 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 spent the past ten minutes talking about market efficiencies, and I don't know, taking your 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 McKinsey analyst hat off and putting your uh, your political commentator hat on. You know, how do you how do you see this playing out? Um, not necessarily from like a firm level, um, but from a uh, uh, from from the politics on both sides. Well, I think the the policy direction on both sides for increased separation on multiple dimensions has a long way to run mm-hmm. because there is so much strength and in, in momentum, whether it's in the United States around, you know, the latest generation of constraints on taking Chinese capital or Chinese management of capital into US startups sure. in a whole host of areas. There's the, what is it, the 28 strategic sectors yeah um and you know yeah shout out to martin trezemper of uh, piie for this uh this great chart and great analysis chart. he's done about these new uh these new rules which are going to you know really put the uh put the dampener in a whole range of chinese investment i remember writing about uh you know writing notes for clients about CFIUS back in 2013 and basically we were like unless you're doing missile technology like you're probably okay but now i mean I don't know what is still okay. Like, I guess, I guess if you're like selling convenience store snacks, maybe that's not gonna uh, ring the bell here. But even that is sort of like personal data. Yeah, you better not be tracking how many calories that eating. Exactly. That. I mean, um, it re- will rewards cards tip you over the edge here? It's uh, um, so it, you know, it's gonna. I mean, just practical dimensions of you know how Cifia is going to scale up to have the capacity to process requests in a timely fashion. How is how are people going to 
you know, get a sense of whether this is likely to be approved or not. In, in reality, I think many will just self-censor out yeah, and say, I, I, the I, assumption I, is I won't be able to get it approved, so I won't do it. Yeah, I think the null hypothesis is CFIUS will maybe hire five more people and there are, you know, it's like a, you know, it, this is like 20x the amount of stuff that potentially falls over it. So, you know, I can totally see Chinese investors just just washing their hands. I think there's, there's another big uncertainty, though, that's around retroactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, of to what extent are these new regulations going to push onto VC funds that have made investments that have 10, 15% Chinese capital or have a partner in the, fu- in the fund who is ethnically Chinese or has a Chinese passport? You know, what's the cutoff on all of these things and how much uh, and how aggressively will they look backwards? Yeah. Well, let's talk about, I guess, the sexiest Sophia story, which is uh, TikTok and the potential for them to be forced to to sell what has been like one of the most impressive Chinese consumer tech stories over the past uh, few years. So any thoughts on this? It's obviously a U.S. political decision, and you know, I'm not an expert on that. But as I say, the direction of travel is absolutely going to make it harder and harder for TikTok to operate in the US under the current ownership structure. So even if they escape with some kind of restructuring and oversight board and and the like in 2020, um, is it going to get more challenging in 21 and 22? Absolutely. My only hot take is like they bought this in 2015, 2016, and there's a double jeopardy aspect of CFIUS where had they been smart and gone through it, they would not have had this massive vulnerability. And I guess at that time, they had no idea this was really going to take off in the way that it was. But that seems to be like a very poor tactical maneuver back then. Well, I think you're making an assumption that Cepheus isn't allowed to say, I've changed my mind. Yeah. Talk to me after after I finish law school, and I'll have a I'll have a better answer for you there. Uh, you mentioned semiconductors earlier. Um, you wrote a bit in your 2020 story about uh, uh, TSMC and the role Taiwan is going to end up playing in this big tech fight. So, so what are your sense of of what the the, the Taiwan based firms are going to um, uh, have to endure over the next couple of years? Taiwan's GDP seems to be plowing ahead at the moment so something's going right mm-hmm. isn't it three percent growth last year so uh, which is pretty good for for taiwan sure. in, in recent years um and you know, to frame tsmc you know the fact that a a technology company in the world today can have more than 10 percent of their sales go to apple and more than 10 percent of their sales go to huawei just indicates the centrality of, of what they do sure um and certainly their uniqueness in being able to manufacture chips with the level of um, density that really no one else can, can, can match at this point in time does put them in a unique position. Uh, and the fact that they're manufacturing in Taiwan for the most sophisticated chips uniquely, not in the US, not in mainland China, uh, again, puts them in a, in a unique position. Clearly, they're going to face commercial pressure. They're clearly they're going to face more political pressure. And they... I think will face you know some pretty challenging investment choices in the near future, whereby I think governments will put pressure on them to say if you're going to supply to our key companies, whether it's in the U.S. or in China, you have to have manufacturing based closer to sure. those companies. 
Sure. So, so in the U.S. in particular, there's been some whisperings both from Democrats and Republicans about industrial policy and how sort of the right answer to the China challenge is not necessarily just these tariffs, but also spending a lot of money and learning some lessons from from the Chinese playbook over the past 20 years of like picking industries and 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 and, and pouring a lot of uh, capital into them. What are your thoughts on this train of thought? First of all, one should look at the success rate of China in trying to pursue that sort of yeah. policy. Um, in the technology space, you know, China's been trying to build world-class semiconductor capability for, what, 20 years? Yeah. World-class automotive industry for 30 years. Doesn't have either of them sure. uh, at, at this point. And you can also look at Europe in the success of industrial policies. You can look at Japan on the success of industrial policies. And yes, you can, you can identify selective winners, but you can also identify way more losers in most cases where government capital has gone to support and prop up industries of the past, companies of the past, rather than creating companies of the future. Shout out to British Steel. Hey, you know, the UK has managed to sell its automotive industry at least three times, and now China owns a lot of that. So why not the same with the steel industry? I sure. think we're about two weeks from closing on that one. I guess it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of narrative thing, because what would stick in your mind is not kind of like mediocre cars that are being produced, but rather solar taking over. The article that gets written is not, oh, China wasted all this money, right? It's like you interview the sad American manufacturers who've gotten screwed over by like the one um, the one industry that actually went really went really well. And then I guess even thinking to the back back to the past 10 years, like the last time America had a sort of like big industrial policy push was 2008 with a stimulus. And like, you know, people tell the Tesla story out of that, even though in the time everyone was like Solyndra and like, look at all this like wasted, yeah. um, uh, wasted money being spent. So there's there's a there's an interesting sort of narrative question of like what captures people's attention. And on the one hand, like sometimes you can get blamed for wasting all this money, but you can also go to the factory that's working and get to brag about how how awesome it is and how it wouldn't be there without you. You're just dealing with the classic survivor bias problem yeah. in declaring success around who's who's still alive. Mm-hmm. And and the survivor often is great, but you sum it all up and you look at the ability of governments of of any stripe to be smarter than the market at picking winners. And I don't think it's a very good track record. Sure. Then there's also the debate of like, is industrial policy or basic research really where you want to be spending your extra marginal, you know, $10 billion if you're worried about losing technological supremacy? Well, I think you need a, in an ideal world, you need an, as a large scale technological leader as a nation, you need a balanced set of investments all the way through the R&D stack mm-hmm. of you, you want to be doing with universities, with defense institutes, absolutely leading edge primary research. And then you need to be balanced in applied and you need to be balanced in, in commercial. Yeah. And um, I, I don't think that either the US or China has has done a great job of balancing investment across, across all three. Yeah. I mean, in, in China, you've had this with the private sector funded companies, a lot of whom have got American capital funding them, just a rush to scale and saying, I need to be the largest first, I need to dominate the market. And that doesn't require fundamental R&D. It requires incredible aggressiveness and commercialization um, and, and, and pushing through and, again, creates survivor bias, but a lot of good, good examples of where that's been the right outcome. Sure. So then there's the question of, like, does this 
kind of operational skill end up transferring into other, you know, more R&D intensive parts of these of these firms? Not very naturally, because if your DNA and your mindset is, you know, I want to dominate my my horizontal sliver of the stack and I can procure all the key components that I need from world class suppliers and I can just integrate them and put it in the market faster than anyone else. That's a commercially very attractive strategy. Yeah, It's one that I know I have the capabilities to do. And it's many ways lower risk than saying, I'm going to put 5% of my sales into something that may pay off 15 years from now. Yeah, you know, I haven't been in business that long. How do I have that? Yeah, how do have I CEOs who are like thirty three? How do I, I mean? create that kind of mindset to do that? It's just very, very different. Sure. So, so what is the right way for governments to incentivize these these firms to do the sorts of things that they want for sort of like national competition purposes? I think it starts in universities mm-hmm. of creating the right environment in universities that encourages uh, world class, high quality academic research that starts in a purely academic sphere that then can evolve constructively into partnerships with businesses Mm -hmm. over time. And then you create a regulatory tax policy environment that rewards early stage risk taking, you know, whether it's around what kind of pre-revenue companies can raise public money, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's around the kind of tax breaks and subsidies, whether it's around the the talent incentives that you have and create geographic clusters probably around those universities of where just the ecosystem gets to critical mass and then builds off itself. So there was a moment in 2019 where it seemed like the trade and tech war would potentially slip over into financial um, the financial markets, which really would have been an escalation on both sides. Can you talk a little bit about that story, what the threat of U.S. delisting, the VIE, um, nuclear option, uh, and how those things, if the trade war goes south again, may end up playing out? Yeah, this does seem to have paused for the time being, but I think I would call it a pause that mm-hmm. you know, we haven't, haven't reached a settlement on this. You know, that if you go back in time, many of China's leading tech companies, Alibaba, JD, Pinduoduo, they're all listed in New York because the markets were deeper. The sense was those markets understood tech and would rate them higher. Uh, and because of the legal entity structure that most of those companies had created, VIEs, it's also nice getting money out of China. Well, that as well, but they weren't able to list in China under, yeah. the, under, under the VIE structure. There's Even since the earliest listings, there's been an issue of regulatory compliance for all these Chinese companies that have listed in the US in terms of making their audit papers available to the regulators mm-hmm. as is required by, the, by the, the listing authorities in the United States. Uh, Chinese government has not let any Chinese company do that. Uh, and tacitly, that's that regulation has just been ignored. Um, so the, the threat of enforcing that regulation is what you know, would de facto lead to, to those companies being delisted. Um, additionally, there was a political push from, I think, mainly Republican senators to say U.S. fund managers should not be putting U.S. citizens' pension money into these Chinese companies. Yeah. More, again, more of a political push. Sort of like a BDS that. story, but for Xinjiang. And what we've seen in parallel to this is, you know, Hong Kong has become more credible. As I mean, Tencent's listed there, Meituan's listed there, 
Alipay is going to list there. You know, Alibaba did its dual listing there last year. So there's there's more availability of a backup plan. Um, plus, my understanding is now talking to some unlisted VIEs in China that they believe they are now able to list in China as VIEs. Mm-hmm. Haven't seen one actually do it yet, but think we're headed. Sorry, a little that. a little background. What a VIE is? And- uh, v- VIE is a in in one sentence is a structure that allows greater than 50% foreign ownership of Chinese companies Mm -hmm. in sectors where that is technically not allowed. And it does it by separating ownership of the underlying physical business from the ownership of the financial returns that it generates. So what sorts of firms are these? Or what are the famous ones? Every Chinese internet company. Uh Um, and so coming back to Hong Kong, you mentioned it's become more attractive. But on the other hand, you know, we've had uh, a year of, of protests in a year uh, and, and sort of like darkening clouds, which don't uh, seem to be going away anytime soon for the future of, uh, of that city. So how are these two trends playing out in parallel? Financial markets in Hong Kong you know, have continued to tra- attract IPOs, con- continued to attract new capital over the course of 2019 and into 2020. As I said, I don't think Hong Kong is the only option now for Chinese companies if they if they were to delist from the United States. I think quite a lot of them would actually at this point go back to to Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is there is some flexibility around that now. You know, talking about Hong Kong, let's come to uh, the MBA story. Were you surprised in how this ended up becoming such a hot button issue? Not really. The you know, the MBA situation has a lot of resonance to to many of the corporate incidents that we've had over time yeah. um, of where corporation unintentionally generally makes a statement, puts something on their website, puts an advert out that upsets part of the Chinese social media community. And corporates find it incredibly hard to react as quickly as is necessary to deal with social media. The NBA overlay is you have very prominent individuals who are part of the NBA, the players. Uh, Whereas in a corporation, you maybe have the CEO, but you don't have other individuals necessarily speaking out with the same prominence and social media resonance you can always fire the head of regional marketing um (laughs) in a way that you can't necessarily for a gm of a firm or a uh or an outspoken you know star Uh, center and many many sportsmen and women have very high social media profiles that are based on being edgy based around their background their personality and speaking out on social issues sure so the fact that someone would speak out about issues that they see in the media and comment on them, it's not at all surprising. Perhaps what did surprise me was it was the NBA rather than soccer. There's there was the the industry where we had this this first major example. Sure. You know, we've had we've had Mesut Ozil come out and 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 talk about Muslims in China. It would be really uh, interesting to see what happens if and when a player on a Chinese owned team ends up doing this. You know, we had a bit with Joe Tsai and the Brooklyn Nets, but none of his 
players themselves were actually doing anything. It was more like just like, you know, 20 fans showed up in the, uh, in the audience wanting to, wanting to process for a few weeks. So there is another flashpoint, which is certainly coming, uh, certainly coming soon. And it will be a real, uh, a real test and, and probably a bigger moment of, of reflection for, for Europe as well. Once these, uh, once the dominoes start following, falling across the pond. Yeah. I actually had a chance to go to one of the Brooklyn's next games right after this incident and, oh fun and it would it was a stretch to say there were 20 i think you might say there were two okay so it really didn't resonate with the with the broader fan base but i mean i think i think it's it's i don't know if it resonate with the broader fan base is the uh is the right frame as much as like this is the you know this stuff has been going on for years yeah. right of you know gucci having to apologize of some airline having to apologize and no one cared at all um and all of a sudden there's something where you had a at least in the in the in the media i mean i don't know if i've seen any polling about this but there was a real sense that uh this was a bridge too far and uh i think more than any of the yeah. other any of the other stories and really any of like trump's railing on china over the past um over the past oh my god almost 4 years now yeah. uh, that this was something that American consumers were were interested in and engaged in. I think the sensitivity as corporates, particularly in the soccer world, is it's partly because the visibility of the sponsorship is incredibly high. With the name, the name is like on the shirt oh, of, sure. of the player, yeah, you know, and in large letters. And as you say, you know, a good number of soccer teams across Europe. Uh, actually, and also in Latin America, are Chinese-owned mm-hmm. at this point, uh, with owners whose primary business is in mainland China, uh, and in some way they'll have the same, or even greater level of sensitivity yeah. um, to how they're being perceived in social media in China, as well as you know by the government in China. Should something blow up with one of the players on their team? EVs. What is the history of uh, electric vehicles in China? Last week we had uh, Elon Musk dancing on stage in Shanghai, celebrating the the, the rollout of his first domestically produced uh, Tesla car. But I'm curious for your uh, you know a, a short story of how we've gotten to this point and the interaction between the uh, the international and domestic players here. I think this is this is an evolution of. China's 30-year desire to create a world-class automotive industry yep. uh, and having having failed to do so with internal combustion engines, perhaps government seeing this as an opportunity to leapfrog uh, and really create the global center of excellence for what they view as going to be uh, as important an industry 20 years from now as internal combustion engine vehicles are today. Um, so a long period of subsidies, uh, subsidies at multiple levels, subsidies to OEMs, manufacturers, subsidies to battery developers, subsidies to consumers buying the cars, whether it's direct subsidies or getting the license plates cheap, uh, subsidies implicit in building the infrastructure to support so the charging stations and, and the like. And so if you just take the snapshot today, when people say, electric vehicle market in 2019 in China didn't have a great year. It's three to four times the size of the U.S. market. Yeah. Um, and and it's not just cars in China. It's also buses. Um, you see more and more cities where the passenger buses have gone 100% electric. And by the way, BYD has a very nice factory in California 
Mm -hmm. making electric buses for the U.S. market. The one thing that sort of stuck out to me that I thought was really interesting about the subsidy policy is, you know, the idea is to have uh, large national firms, right? But because a lot of the, you were talking about the levels of subsidies, right? You've had national subsidies, you've had provincial subsidies, and you've even had like city level subsidies. And um, there have been some academic studies on this where like, Actually, the, there's been enough regulatory capture at the like city and provincial level that there are way too many, like the market shares of the firm based in like Sichuan is like way higher than it, way higher than it is for all the other places because they've been able to say, oh, like your windshield wiper should be X length and, and your charging needs to be like this certain voltage or what have you. But, to- but totally. I mean, and, and that's again an extension of the way the automotive industry worked for its first 20 years in China. Yeah. VW share in Shanghai was way higher than it was in, in other cities. Um, so that actually benefited and cost multinationals, not just, just local guys. So absolutely, the electric vehicle industry is going to, to consolidate. It's interesting because this, this comes back to our industrial policy question as well. Is like, it's a very different thing from, from conceiving of it. Yeah. And the actual implementation gets very messy and very captured very and, quickly. And very inefficient and very, if you're a purist, value destroying yeah you know uh, for everyone other than the guy who wins yeah. at the end of the day where there has been i think slightly more efficient subsidy and investment support is around the battery side of things yeah. and if you think the battery is the key component going into that having catl you know having lg and other foreign guys 100 percent foreign owned invested in in tesla doing its gigafactory here as well the manufacturing scale the learning curve on producing batteries, Chinese production in China is clearly going to be ahead yeah. of the rest of the world. I think Tesla's timing, in many ways, is absolutely fantastic mm-hmm. coming into China at this point. You know, already just with imports, you know, China's double digits. I think it was 12, 15% of their global sales last year was in China. You know, you can, Tesla's. Tesla's, mm-hmm. yeah. You can easily project that that number could go up to 30%. Tesla becomes a China-centric company. Yeah. You know, Five, 10 years from now, because the market's going to be so much bigger here than in the United States. You know, they say they're going to put an R&D center in so that the next round of cars... That yeah, they the Chinese characteristics. Chinese characteristics. <laughs> and I don't actually know what that exactly means in China for electric vehicles. But clearly, every major internal combustion engine manufacturer has China-specific models, or it launches the models in China first before it launches them in the rest of the world. And one of the big uncertainties for Tesla to the upside in China this year is if China's relations with Germany over Huawei don't progress positively, there could well be a social media consumer pushback on buying German luxury cars, Uh for which really the only one of the few alternatives would be buy a Tesla. Yeah, just be I mean, like there are all you see are Audis on the street here. So, um, and, and just given the relative size, I mean, it would only take a marginal reduction or a marginal switch in purchases from German premium cars to Tesla for Tesla to be able to get to 100, 150,000 units of sales yeah. in China. It's interesting, the sort of government seeming embrace, uh, the Chinese government seeming embrace of, of China. You know, we, we've had, uh, we've had Elon Musk hang out in Zhongnanhai and, and whatnot. And, and on the one hand, like, so how does how does Tesla's entry and uh, you know increasing engagement and in building in China play out in the like in the ideal situation and then in the and then on the downside from the 
Chinese government's industrial policy perspective? Um, from a Chinese government perspective, it's great to have a very visible, vocal champion like Elon Musk saying how open China is sure. to foreign investment. The second is by having the world leader manufacturing in China, sourcing in China, designing in China and selling in China, the intent would be to stimulate Chinese players to up their game. Sure. Um, the risk is, I think, that all of the traditional internal combustion engine guys have got a pipeline to introduce you know, the best part of 100 electric vehicle models into China over the next three years. And we could be pretty comfortable that you know, those, those vehicles will be well-designed, they'll be cost-effective, they will be China-centric models because they're coming from companies that have been operating in China for 20 years. Yeah. There is a risk that five years from now, China has the largest electric vehicle market in the world by a factor of 10, and 80% market share belongs to foreign companies. Depending on where you are in the Chinese government, that could be a great success or a major failure. Sure. Because the supply chain will be entirely in China. There'll be millions of people employed in the industry. Sure. It's not going to shift anywhere else anytime soon. The battery design technology is going to be here in China. And China will, at that point, almost certainly become a major exporter of electric vehicles. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess the, 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 the upside from that story is like Tesla becomes the Apple of the 2020s for this, uh, for this industry and then ends up sort of spinning off all these other Chinese firms, which like at some point will able to be able to make their, their beautiful uh, high-end cars and create, you know, Huawei Mate pro equivalents of tesla s's but even if but even if that that eventuality doesn't end up playing out you still have uh, an enormous uh, sector which you can sort of claim to have like birthed through your um like you know foresight in your exactly your yang yeah. guang or whatever and and frank you could argue that it's a benefit to the world sure that china subsidized the creation of this industry and has shifted the world away from you know pollution generating cars to you know electric sure so chinese consumers uh in 2020 uh you talked about how there are a lot of young people with no babies and no debt which leads them to be spending a lot more money than uh their their parents generation used to what are the what are the sort of implications of this going forward a couple of other implications around what they're not spending money on i mean many many people in their 20s to 30s are coming to the conclusion that they'll they'll never be able to afford an apartment. Yeah. So they're not bothering to save up for it. So so on this show, Gooser FM, which we talked about last week, one of the guests was this like young man in his early 30s who, like you were saying, very early just decided he was like not going to buy a house and like not going to buy a car. And he just is comparing himself to his colleagues who like make the same amount of money and they're like stressed all the time. And he's like, I go into the convenience store and I buy like four sodas and like I have one one sip of each of them and it's great. And, you know, I have my little trips and I am like so less stressed because I have decided to break out of like the mold, which, you know, all of society and media is telling me, which is that like, I cannot be an adult until I have a house. But like, once you sort of like rid yourself of that meme, I guess you all, all of a sudden open up all these new ways to spend your, your life and your time as opposed to being stressed about um, your, your mortgage payment. And that person, I think you push it even further even if they did need to say so they were going to buy some, some, something of larger scale, so let's say they were going on a round-the-world trip yeah. and they wanted to finance that, they'd be quite happy to borrow 
against doing that. So consumer debt is not it's not something they fear, and they're quite willing to you know to, to buy stuff on installments if that's what they want to do. But yeah. they're completely variableizing their expenditure um, and and pulling their expenditure forward, whereas the previous generation was all about saving up, pooling the family's resources, For this and, then, one big- and then locking it into the property that. You know, we can all speculate around, you know, what's the direction of property prices in China city by city. But I think we can all agree that the the, the returns that the, the last two generations have captured in property are not going to be available to the next generation. So it's it's a it's a pretty rational response on 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 folks. ends. I mean, like running is great. I don't get it. Like you can put your money in other things. And then if this one, you can like diversify and like have a liquid asset. I it's, 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 I've had a few conversations around this with other, other Chinese young people. And like, it's, it's such like a breakthrough moment. Like once you realize you don't have to do this, but I mean, it's, it it is such a social and cultural thing that it does. And if it, I mean, we're talking about the early stages of this trend. Yeah. I mean, if it really does scale, then it has enormous implications around previous generation of families that own multiple homes. Yeah. And you know, the fact that they won't be able to, they won't be able to release the capital. They may be able to rent them, but they won't be able to release because the secondary market isn't going to be particularly strong at all. And then it's going to push into property developers of, you know, what kind of properties, you know, if you if you're, if you're developing apartments that are fundamentally going to be for rent, is it the is it a different design of apartment? Do yeah. we need as many apartments in the cities? How do you, you know? How do you, how do you think about uh, all, all of those kind of things? And so, I think it's something that's really worth watching very closely and trying to track because it's not just about enabling different types of go forward expenditure on services and 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 and, and like, but it's also about changing the nature of expenditure on traditional categories of goods yeah so one so one of the fun new uh consumer sectors that's that's been getting uh, a fair amount of press attention is are these fake meats you know pork and beef and and, and chicken and whatnot there was this big like rollout at like some 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 chinese thing that xi jinping went to where they they showed impossible pork for the first time and i was sort of bummed that there wasn't like a photo of like chinese leadership tasting it and being like oh yeah like Hi, sir. Hi, sir. Um, so I had one at Wagas recently. They have like a fake pork thing. Not impressive, but maybe there's maybe they're not up to like the current generation of like super flavor. The the push for plant protein meat substitutes um, is is clearly a global one. Yeah. But I think it is one that's coming to China. Um, and in the U.S., you know, it starts primarily on beef because. Of it's the dominance of beef consumption in the U.S. Yeah. In China, it rationally focuses on on pork, uh, and at a time when you know more than half the stock of pigs in China has been wiped out by disease, it's an interesting time to have the conversation. Sure. Um, and it, it, it's not just it's a health and safety conversation, not just a you know is this good for the environment sure. conversation. And which is which is different from the rest of the world that has much more faith in its um, uh, you know cold chains and whatnot. Exactly, exactly. Um, and again, if you get into this twenty to thirty age group that is more environmentally aware and so- socially aware on the, these kind of topics, the the number of restaurant chains, not just the you know the pseudo Western chains uh, yeah. here that uh, have a pork substitute set of options on the menu now 
is really accelerating incredibly rapidly. I think it, you can you can argue it's still in the as far as the restaurant chains are concerned, it's still in the trial phase of. Yeah. What's the sustained take? Because, you know, when we launch something new in China, there's always this incredible spike of, of trial. Yeah. But can you sustain it? You know, the, the evidence from, from actually Hong Kong and, and Taiwan, which is, I think, a little bit further ahead on the adoption, is that it does sustain. Sure. Um, and that if you can get, get the product into, say, the, say, say, you know, dumpling restaurant chains that are using literally thousands of tons of pork yep. a week. In you know across their networks, um, you only need to capture five percent of that, and you have a pretty interesting market opportunity. Are you are you a fan of these like Buddhist vegetarian restaurants? Have you been to any of them? I, I have been to them. I think that's that's a different. It, I mean, at the very highest level, it's the same same theme. Yeah. Uh, but practically for your average user, they're going to say, "I want a meal that looks and feels like my usual comfort food." Yeah. But I want it to be a little bit more environmentally sustainable. That that's where the, the these new types of pork substitute come in. And by the way, there's multiple domestic manufacturers investing in this area, uh, as well as the international players, and from Hong Kong and Taiwan. It's an area where there is R and D, but it's not what we were talking about earlier. Way up the stack R and D. It's more art-type R&D in the sense of you're creating a recipe. Yeah. As a kosher-styled Jew, it's really fun for me to have, like, Hong Shao Rao <laughs> and uh, just, like, get a, get a bit of a sense of, like, what, like, half of the Chinese menu, which I never touch, is, is like in these Buddhist places. So, so last fun, uh, uh, last fun story. You wrote a little bit about the rise of theme parks. There's like a Beijing Universal coming in. We got a Shanghai Legoland. What's your what's your what's your preferred ride? Oh, I'm way way too old for for rides. Oh come so, on! But which one would I invent? I mean, yes. Yeah, um, theme theme parks is symptomatic of Chinese families, Chi- not just Chinese families, but just Chinese groups of people who want to go out for a destination day yeah. and event. And, you know, around in Guangdong, we've got a pretty well-established tradition of theme, you know, of uh, adventure theme parks, yeah. rides and, and, and the like. Uh, Great, like safari going yeah. on there. And, you know, Dis- Disney in Shanghai being there, proven to, to the markets that foreign, foreign branded theme parks can be, can be successful. Lego piggybacking, you know, on, on Shanghai, um, I think what's close to a billion dollars they're going to be putting into that. I think the the opportunity, given the size of the middle class and the, as we talked about, willingness to spend on this kind of personal entertainment, it's going to get higher and higher. I think a lot of it's going to there'll be, there'll probably be two themes. There'll be the theme around the family park and there'll be the theme around the 20-somethings going mm-hmm. as a group. Yeah. And maybe there's a bit of an intersection, but I think both will be be there. I do wonder, like, uh, on on your Beijing Universal, how it's really going to work as we're sitting here in Beijing and it's, like, two degrees centigrade. Yeah. And, you know, if it's not two degrees centigrade, you know, the the PM is somewhere up over 150. Yeah. Um, it's going to well, be I've been I've been to water parks in Beijing with, like, two plus 200... Uh, PMI and people are still getting out there. So I'm not, I'm not super worried about that, but I mean, it is pretty far out. I think that's the other thing. It's like, uh, it's maybe like one and a half, two hours from, uh, from the third ring. Yeah. But, uh, 
we can always build a high speed rail to, to anywhere, <laughs> and we'll be you can get there. In well, this was like didn't like Epcot wasn't this like the first? Didn't they have like the first like light rail in the world or something? Oh, the first that rings a bell. What, I don't. That's I some, some story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, so I think theme theme parks across China um, were really still at the very early stage of scaling and investing, um, and. Again, because of the relative size of the middle class, I think, you know, 20 years from now, could a third of the global theme park industry be here in China? Yep. We'll be innovating in what theme parks are in China and taking ideas to the rest of the world. Quite probably, yes. Um, so we, we, we talked about 20-somethings enjoying theme parks in groups. They are also going to be enjoying the rest of the world in groups. We already have 150 million Chinese nationals going abroad every year, which is mind-boggling. And that number is you know only going to increase. Um, what does this mean for the world when all of a sudden uh the 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 sort of numbers of uh you know people like complain about like the airbnbification and how like you know amsterdam is ruined or whatever it seems like a like a like an underreported thing uh just the extent that the the the, the sort of human to human interaction will 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 have um not just from a financial perspective but also a sort of like cultural and political one i think many many cities are going to struggle with this suddenly receiving you know a discontinuity increase yeah. in yeah. the number of i mean it, it literally could go 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 up 3x in one year um with the city having no idea that it was going to happen just because a couple of social media opinion leaders in china went to a place and said this is great yeah and all of a sudden you get a million people saying i want to go there yeah. and uh very, very difficult for cities. I think the you know the Venice approach of potentially just having to charge people to go into the city at all and rationing the number of people who can go into central areas maybe is easier for a Venice just given its geographic layouts than than a central Paris or a Barcelona or yeah. cities like that. But there's absolutely going to be stresses on this, and I think cities will have to find ways to to ration and potentially tax people, you know, just to increase the cost of visiting, both to, to to limit the number of people going and also to try and generate some revenue that they can plow back into the city so that residents of the city feel less upset by what's going on. Sure. So you had a little bit about 2020 in the uh, in the Olympics and the, the the upcoming influx of uh, of Chinese tourists who are willing to make a three and a half hour flight. Um, there's going to be an awful lot of Chinese tourists there um, and they'll be swamping the high-end Japanese restaurants. They'll be swamping the high and mid-range hotels. And I think in some senses, Tokyo has had some time to prepare because there's basically been a decade now of, of growing sure. Chinese uh, tourists and, and Chinese investment of people buying apartments in, 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 in Tokyo. But I think other visitors to Tokyo will find it surprising just how many Chinese visitors there are uh, and as a consequence how China-centric a lot of the support has to be. Sure. I'm still on the... I mean, this is globalist Jordan talking, but I, I still think this is like a like a positive trend and reflection of like a people getting wealthier and and not having to you know 
you know, and, and, and having surplus income and the ability to like enjoy uh, leisure time. And, you know, on the one hand, yes, there will be like the, the, the odd city that gets overrun. But um, the, this is this is also something that's going to create a lot of a lot of opportunity for places around the world that could really use the, you know, the, the city tax or like the extra hotel that gets built or the extra, you know, um, oh, absolutely. And, and if, you. you know, if China is really going to buy 35 billion more in services from the US over the next two years, that I think is probably going to require a lot more Chinese tourists to get visas to go to the US and spend money there. Sure. So coming uh, finally to the, uh, the the trade war and the kind of numbers that have been put uh, or assigned to China as homework to um, to hit to fill up to fulfill their side of the uh, the bargain, how realistic do you think those are, and what what sectors will or won't make the um, make the cut? And if either side sort of gets frustrated, like how do you see the um, uh, the ramifications of that playing out? I think the numbers are theoretically possible, but it requires pretty intense and sustained collaboration from both parties. Mm-hmm. So if you take take manufacturing, I mean, clearly it's going to need Boeing to sell a lot more planes, which partly is dependent on the 737 MAX getting reapproved yeah. in China um, within the time frame, uh, potentially means Boeing reallocating planes that have been theoretically sold to other con- other countries' airlines. Can you imagine that backlash of... Uh, the plane getting approved by the Chinese government, a plane going down, and then people are like, oh, Donald Trump pushed you into making us fly on this terrible plane? I mean, there's a lot of debate on like to what extent Chinese public opinion plays for um, for Zhongnan uh, Hai when it comes to foreign policy. But if that is the way that this story plays out, I um, the, the the sort of like realm, uh, you know, the, the space that um, Chinese political leadership has to to, to be accommodation to 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 accommodate uh, uh, the U.S. in particular will, will really really be constrained. I suspect the risk is more. I mean, China was one of the first to stop the Max from flying. Yeah, I think it'll be one of the last to reapprove the Max for flying. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's others. I mean, take semiconductors. Um, probably Chinese tech companies are, uh, have historically bought massive amounts of semiconductors, more uh, a leading import category. You know, for that to go up, let alone stay the same, requires the U.S. government to continue to permit U.S. companies to export semiconductors to China. On agriculture, you know, clearly this is a displacement set of set of imports uh, and other countries relations with other countries you know will be will be impacted other types of manufacturing cat- category there's potential uh, for China to change its regulations on importation of scrap metal for going into the, the, the steel making process mm-hmm. uh, which you know basically have been blocked for the last few years by China's rule about we don't want to import the rest of the world's waste yeah. uh, you could create an exception uh, and actually probably import quite a lot. On oil and gas, again, it's substitutional and it relies on the US having the export capacity to you know, put that much volume on ships uh, to, 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 to get to China. Uh, and as I started to say on services, stu- Chinese students going to the US, Chinese tourists going to the US, two of the biggest categories of, of, of service, service revenue, people need to get visas to do that. Yeah. Um, other sources of, of service revenue is technology licensing. Again, 
is that going to be uh, encouraged by, by the left hand of the U.S. government when the right hand wants that to happen? Yeah. Unclear. It's, 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 it's going to be a fascinating dynamic because this was sort of like the unspoken contradiction through all of 2019, where the whole point of the trade war for some people was to get China to open up. And now they, on paper, say they will for certain sectors, but a lot of them are uh, end up touching issues which people have a lot of equities and fears that um, engagement is actually not the right strategy. So there, there will there will be sort of decisions in, in China, but as well as in the US of like, okay, well, if like the marginal Chinese student is one that's studying, uh, you know, aeronautics, like, is that a student we want because we want to help the trade balance or are we more worried about, uh, you know, about trade secrets and whatnot? Lots to follow in 2020. Definitely, there's going to be left hand doing things that isn't clear that the right hand is supportive of. Sure. Gordon Orr, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thank you. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut